Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hi, I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, host of the new How Stuff Works Now podcast. Every week, I'll be bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous developments we've seen in science, technology, and culture. Fresh episodes will be out every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and everywhere else that fine podcasts are found. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this episode was inspired by an article posted over on NPR's website from their podcast, The Hidden Brain, hosted by our favorite, our fave, Shankar Vedantam. Yeah. Um, and it was about the so-called mothers of gynecology. And we're going to spend the next 45 minutes talking about them. So I will just hop forward and say that I posted the article on the Stuff I'm Never Told You Facebook page, and the response was overwhelming. Were people not aware of that history? No, they weren't. I mean, I wasn't either. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to share it with people. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we knew with that kind of response um, that we needed to take the time and dedicate a whole podcast to J. Marion Sims, who's known as the father of gynecology, mm-hmm. but the women he experimentally operated on that essentially allowed him to make all of these scientific breakthroughs that we do uh, benefit from in our OBGYN's offices today. Right. And we're going to talk a lot about J. Marion Sims himself, not at the exclusion of these women, but almost I guess you could say that we're looking at these women through a J. Marion Sims lens simply because the fact that he was a white doctor with a degree of fame, there's obviously a lot of information out there about him. And because the women he operated on were enslaved black women, we don't have records of these women's voices. And so we have to do our part to dive in and sort of excavate this history so that we are aware of this pretty brutal history of early gynecology. And it also harkens the social media hashtag say her name. Mm -hmm. You know, this is like Mm -hmm. the 19th century version of that, where most of 
the women's names were lost to history, but we do know the names of three, Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy. And knowing those names and saying those names, as we're going to, is also important for filling in these gaps in our history. Right, because it makes it it makes it more real when you realize that these women, they weren't just nameless, faceless black women. These were real live women who were already experiencing so much pain and trauma, as we'll talk about, and then were part of experimental therapeutic surgery. So let's get down to old J. Marion Sims. He was a physician from Alabama and from 1845 to 1849. Like we said, he performed these experimental surgeries on enslaved women to repair something called a vesicovaginal fistula, which are holes between the bladder and the vagina or holes between the rectum and the vagina that can result from traumatic childbirth. Yeah. And so because of the Pretty impressive for the time advancements that he created and championed and the lives that he subsequently saved. Uh, as Kristen said, he's hailed as the father of gynecology and the founder of modern surgical gynecology. And I mean, this guy has statues all over the place in his honor in South Carolina, which is his home state, Alabama, where he established his medical practice and made all of those fistula treatment discoveries and New York, which is where he later established and ran a booming women's hospital. Although it's a women's hospital that I think exclusively serviced white patients. Oh, yeah. Yes, it was. <laughs> Pretty much for Irish women, basically. (laughs) So it was really starting in the 60s and 70s with the rise of the civil rights movement and the women's rights movements that historians and physicians began looking back at Sims and wondered, like, wait a second, does he deserve these statues? I mean, yeah, he accomplished things, but do the ends justify the means in his case? Right. And so... We want to dive in today to the full story of who he was, what he did, and who were the women that he performed these repeated painful experimental surgeries on without anesthesia. So let's look back quickly at Sims' early years. What shaped this guy? He was born in 1813 in Lancaster, South Carolina, and he was neither of great wealth nor of great brilliance. And honestly, he just figured he might as well be a doctor because he was basically like middle class, normal, average dude, but with a good education. Uh, so he's like, uh, I could have been a lawyer. Nah, you know, I could be a teacher. Uh-uh, I'm not going to make my fame that way. I guess I'll be a doctor. He sounds like, you know, kind of the better call Saul of gynecology. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I love that show. Um, And so he ends up moving to Alabama, though, in 1835 after two of his first patients, infants, died from a disease causing persistent diarrhea. And he really lived a pretty uneventful and nearly impoverished first few years until he and his family moved to Montgomery And there he started to make a name for himself. He was definitely a self-promoter. He started bragging about being the first in the South to successfully treat club feet and crossed eyes. But as a country doctor, he was also paid to treat sick and injured slaves on plantations. And plantation owners would be heavily interested in providing this kind of treatment because sick or injured slaves can't work. And also, sick and injured enslaved women can't give birth. 
Thus, it's a profit loss Mm -hmm. for uh, these slave owners. And then one day, one of these slave owners sends along to J. Marion Sims two women, Betsy and 17-year-old Anarka, both of whom had vesicovaginal fistulas. But Anarka's, the 17-year-old's case, was extremely bad because she had had a protracted labor causing holes from her vagina to her bladder and rectum. And she was also the first case of this that he'd ever seen. And he'd assisted the doctor with her delivery. And at first, Sims was like, uh, I don't know if I can help in this case. I don't, what, what, what am I going to do? I'm better call Saul of, you know, ye old gynecology. Gynecology isn't even really a thing yet. How could I help? Well, yeah, but just like Jimmy in Better Call Saul, he figured out a way to help. But the whole reason that he's like, I don't know if I can help these ladies, you've got to look at the context of the time. There had been no cure for this stuff. So before we get into how Sims pivoted to gynecology from his general practice, you have to understand the context of vesicovaginal fistulas because it is horrific. So we've already hinted at the fact that they are caused by prolonged and obstructed labor. Basically, what happens is when the fetus won't fit through the birth canal. I hope no one's eating, by the way, because this is brutal. I literally when I was reading this, Kristen, because what I've included in our notes today is not anywhere near the full picture. I just hit the high points because I literally got lightheaded reading about this. Yeah. Graphic details ahead. friends. Yeah. There's like mentions of like bone plates grinding. I left that out. Um, OK, so basically the fetus won't fit through the birth canal and gets wedged with each contraction. It is wedged. Harder and harder. Eventually, uh, you get massive crush injuries because of this wedging to the soft tissue of the pelvis and the blood supply gets cut off. The fetus suffocates. Days later, days later, because of where we are in our scientific and medical history at this point, the fetus having been left where it is, it finally slides out as does dead tissue from the woman's injured pelvis. That is secreted, and once that's secreted, a fistula forms. The woman then experiences a complete loss of urinary and, in a woman like Anarka's case, sometimes fecal control, often in addition to horrific side effects like secondary infertility, complete loss of vaginal function, recurring infections, and you also have to take the mental health effects of this into account. One of the huge effects, whether it's a woman today experiencing it or a woman in the 19th century, is depression. Because not only have you lost a child and experienced super traumatic pain, but the fact that you are constantly experiencing urinary and fecal uh, loss, you end up being an outcast. You face huge stigma because you can't control your bowels, you can't control your bladder, and you smell which then, of course, contributes to a loss of dignity and self-esteem. And some of these women did end up killing themselves because of this condition. And so it was a huge deal for women at this time. Yeah, I mean, it was completely debilitating to the point that um, in the study that we were reading, uh, one of the only things really that some of these women could do would be to essentially sit on a chamber pot Mm -hmm. because, I mean, they couldn't really go anywhere. They were constantly ruining their clothes. I mean, they, they couldn't do anything. And we should note that this is still officials are still a major health care issue for a lot of women in developing nations, too. But 
back to the 19th century, this wasn't uncommon at all, partially because of like lackluster maternity care. But like you said, it was catastrophic. Um, and in 1847, a French surgeon reported the medical community hadn't heard of a single case where a woman was successfully treated. And physicians were quite aware of the debilitating effects of this condition. An 1857 report that was delivered at the Georgia State Medical Society uh, included the description that most of the other physical evils of life sink into utter insignificance because of the constant pain and mental trauma that the woman has to experience. And so it's against this backdrop. You have a physician with no real reputation to speak of, and you've got this terrible common condition with no cure that Sims ends up pivoting to gynecology. He's he's going out in his rounds one day. He's on his horse. He's going out to treat people all over the region and he gets word of a middle-aged white woman named Mrs. Merrill who'd been thrown from her horse. She'd experienced an injury. He needed to come right away and treat her. So Sims goes to take care of her and realizes that Merrill has sustained a pelvic injury and her uterus is out of place. And now at this point, obviously he hadn't yet started his focus on gynecological issues. And in his autobiography, which I ended up really getting sucked into because, did I mention he was a self-promoter? It's a really interesting time capsule of a read. Uh, he wrote, if there was anything I hated, it was investigating the organs of the female pelvis. But this poor woman was in such a condition that I was obliged to find out what was the matter with her. How chivalrous. So nice. So nice. And and find out he did. So what Sims did was have Mrs. Merrill squat on her bed under a sheet for modesty. And he inserted two fingers into her vagina. And by doing that, he was able to reposition the uterus and she immediately experienced relief. And Caroline, I don't quick aside, reading that, like I didn't know it was so easy to reposition a uterus. Well, apparently there's lots of pushing and pulling involved. Okay. And there was something about the position that helped introduce air into the vaginal canal. So like oh. you get you get puffed up like a balloon and I say this because literally in his autobiography he describes how she massively queefed when she then lay down on the bed. And and I'm not even saying that as like a ha ha ha. I'm literally saying that this was his eureka moment. A queef. A queef proved to be a eureka moment. Yeah, so (laughs) thanks to uh, Mrs. Merrill and her therapeutic queef, J. Marion Sims thought, you know what, maybe this similar positioning that gave him that kind of access to the uterus could be helpful to treat Betsy and Anarka. So he then bought and bent a silver spoon with his mind, like in the Matrix. No, not really. <laughs> um, he bent the silver spoon, which was kind of like a, a prototype for a speculum, and brings Betsy in to examine her. And he said, quote, I saw everything as no man had ever seen before. Yeah. I mean, just when you're down there as a tourist, you typically don't see quite as much. But he, with his prototype speculum, clearly saw the outline of Betsy's fistula and was like, it just looks like a tear in some fabric. Why can't 
why can't we fix that? And years later, he would write, again, questionable. I thought only of relieving the loveliest of God's creation of one of the most loathsome maladies that can possibly befall poor human nature. I felt that I'd had a mission of divine origin. I could not have ceased my labors if I had tried. And I'm like, okay, let's think about the context of the time again, right? Because we can never forget context. This is Sminty. This is a white slave owner from the South dealing with enslaved women who are traumatized by childbirth and pain. And he previously was like, ew, lady parts. And suddenly he's talking about the loveliest of God's creatures. And he had no motivation beyond helping the loveliest of God's creatures. I am making my most skeptical face right now. She sure is. I mean, because that's quite a change from his earlier position. Uh, So anyway, through all of these eureka moments, Sims ends up writing to slave owners around the region to find cases of previously ignored or untreated vesicovaginal fistulas. So at one point he writes to the man who technically owned Anarka and and Betsy said, if you will give me Anarka and Betsy for experiment, I agree to perform no experiment or operation on either of them to endanger their lives and will not charge a cent for keeping them, but you must pay their taxes and clothe them. I will keep them at my expense. Oh, just the the language of bodies as property is is overwhelming. Um, And essentially what he did was rent Anarka and Betsy. And like 12 other women, too. I'm it's. It's hard to to fathom, honestly. Um, So he paid taxes on them for the years that he was essentially renting them. Um, uh, But he did complain about how it was an enormous tax for a young doctor in a country practice. Yeah. Get it. Get out of here, (laughs) Dr. Sims. Yeah. I mean, it really it really would be the same as someone complaining about property taxes for him. That was that was the tone it took. And so anyway. Within three months of reaching out to all of these slave owners, he had started his experimental therapeutic surgeries on Betsy, Anarka, and several other women at this small hospital that he had built behind his house for this specific purpose. And one of those first operations was on a woman named Lucy, who also had a really bad case of fistula. Part of her bladder was entirely gone. And when... The man who owned Lucy sent her to Sims. He really wasn't sure, again, that he could help. He wrote, she was very much disappointed for her condition was loathsome and she was in hopes that she could be cured. And during her surgery, he said, that was before the days of anesthetics, he wrote, and the poor girl on her knees bore the operation with great heroism and bravery. I succeeded in closing the fistula in about an hour's time, which was considered to be very good work. Uh, Vanessa Northington Gamble, who's a doctor and medical historian at George Washington University, has some quibbles. She writes or she told Shankar Vedantam in that hidden brain piece. Listen, this was very painful. And uh, he would Sims would go on to say that Lucy felt as if she were going to die and that she cried out in pain so much because of these surgeries. And it's like. Well, obviously, this is insanely painful and with no anesthesia. I mean, I can't imagine it makes me like go pale just thinking about it. And it speaks to Sims's quote speaks to something that we will address more as we go through this episode. But it speaks to the assumption that black women could sustain more pain 
than delicate flower white ladies. And so there was just this assumption that he held, as did pretty much every other physician in the country at the time, that like, oh, it's okay. They'll just like grin and bear it when we expose them to so much pain. But of course, Sims didn't come up with a magical cure overnight or or in like that hour that he claims it took to operate on Lucy. There were endless failures and repeated surgeries. Again, let us emphasize without any anesthesia. Um, and he writes about how uh, at last I performed operations only with the assistance of the patients himself, basically saying like all of his doctor friends were just tired of being there and watching him try and fail. Um, and and P.S., let's keep in mind, too, that these women were completely naked and exposed while this group of uh, white male doctors would be um, watching them. Yeah. I mean, after years of watching and assisting with these surgeries, these even these fellow doctors were like, I'm out. Like, I can't I can't do this anymore. And so Sims did train these enslaved women as his surgical assistants, and they helped him operate on their fellow patients. Uh, and he gets to it. Sims gets to a point where he pauses for a couple of weeks because he's so disheartened by all of these failures. Again, it's all about him. Uh, and so he's really mulling over how to better suture these fistulas. And he reports that in the meantime, and this is something you will see in any source about Sims, he reports that the women were, quote, clamorous for him to get back to it. And on the one hand, I feel like that is used to justify a lot of brutality and, and awfulness and experimentation. Uh, but on the other hand, like, yeah, I mean, if you were suffering and here's this person who's like, I'm going to cure you, I'd probably be like, hey, tick tock, can we get back to it? Uh, so there, you know, again, there are layers to it. But he ends up one night getting the idea for a new technique. He tries it on Lucy, but it fails too. Then he finally gets the idea to use a fine silver thread once he realized that the unsterilized silk thread that he was using was part of the problem. It was causing infections. And he had read about a Virginia surgeon who had used lead sutures. So in spring 1849, he tries his new method on Anarka. And it's worth mentioning that this was Anarka's 30th unanesthetized surgery. Fortunately for everyone involved, it worked beautifully. She healed really well. And two weeks later, Betsy's and Lucy's fistulas had healed and closed as well with this new technique. And the thing is, I mean, if J. Marion Sims were a doctor today, he would be all over social media. He would be live tweeting all of this stuff. I mean, the guy was so driven by self-promotion, even to the point you could argue of like self-branding, because he wanted to revolutionize medicine. I mean, he specifically took on these cases because he wanted to get that kind of fame. And this was something that Jeffrey S. Sarton wrote about in 2004 in the Southern Medical Journal about how, you know, Sims even said, I had made perhaps one of the most important discoveries of the age for the relief of suffering humanity. And in a way, he's Right. I mean, it was a massive breakthrough. But there's that question of was he actually concerned with the health and safety of Anarka, Betsy, Lucy and the other women that he experimentally operated on? Or were they, as Dr. Graham J. Barker Benfield would argue in the 1970s, just guinea pigs to advance this white dude's career? Because there's no evidence 
that he ever followed up with the women and no data about the rest of the women. And Shankar Vedantam says on Hidden Brain, quote, he wanted to be a trailblazing researcher. And these women, their bodies became props in his journey of scientific discovery. Yeah, exactly. So on the one hand, we get incredibly valuable medical advancements that will go on to change the lives of countless women. But it's done on the back, so to speak, of enslaved women who essentially were at their wit's end, who had no other options available to them. And of course, there's a lot more to this story that we're going to talk about when we come right back from a quick break. So, Kristen, I finally got my act together and went and used Squarespace to build the Caroline Irvin Hub on the Internet. Oh, I'm so excited. Yes, I built a website finally, and it was super easy. And I knew that using Squarespace with all of its amazing templates would be super easy, but it was even more smooth sailing than I expected. And at first, I wasn't sure what template to pick because there are a lot of great ones to choose from. I was able to sort of mix and match and mess around with the whole shebang until I figured out what worked best for me. And it, I'm really happy with it. And you love it? I do love it. Oh, well, Again, it's like I said, it's just pictures of corgis and dyes. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you want to do what Caroline and I have done and build your website, because who doesn't need a website these days? Sure. You need to head over to squarespace.com. And if you use our promo code MOMSTUFF, you can get 10% off your first purchase with a free domain. So really, why shouldn't you do it? Because you don't have to pay until you are ready to launch that website. So head over to squarespace.com and use the code MOMSTUFF for 10% off and a free domain. And now back to the show. So in 1853, J. Marion Sims packs up his bag and his family and is like, see you later, South. I'm heading to New York City. New York City? Yeah, and he immediately sets about establishing a mixed reputation, uh, as you would assume with somebody like this. Like, oh, good, you're a really good doctor, but you're kind of a douche. Uh, so, okay. Some historians and critics have suggested that Sims left the South not because, as he claimed, I'm so sick, like I need to find a better climate that suits my health better, but because of criticism over, quote, immoral slave experiments. And as he was getting set up in New York, he it is telling that he omitted some pretty important details of records of those groundbreaking Southern surgeries in both a paper on the topic and a lecture he delivered. He referred to the women as, quote, healthy young Negro women, leaving out the whole slave bit and leaving out the whole part that, no, they were not healthy. They were desperate and also enslaved. And adding insult to injury, the early illustrations accompanying his writing about the topic show the patients as white. Talk about some revisionist history. Mm -hmm. So in 1855, just two years later, the women's hospital is established and it's a public and privately funded charity hospital exclusively for, quote, female disorders. I mean, in this (laughs) from the dude who was so like lady Mm -hmm. pelvises. 
Um, and Sims earns fame through the hospital, which did primarily treat Irish immigrant women. But again, he got the rumor mill going with questions about these experiments on these often destitute immigrant women and whether they were happening with informed consent going on. Right, exactly. Uh, and during the Civil War, he actually travels to Europe to get out of the country. And in 1863, treats Empress Eugenie, wife of Napoleon III, for a fistula. And she, by the way... Uh, he performed the surgery on her while she was under chloroform. So she was anesthetized. Um, and again, sort of getting to that mixed reputation in the early post-war period, although he had owned slaves, he had defended the system of slavery and written many a poor word about black people in letters to colleagues. He urged the South after the Civil War to accept the 15th Amendment and just move on. I really am getting the impression that this guy, like, it's not that he necessarily has principles, (laughs) right? Oh, God. It's not like he sticks by, like, the awful system of slavery or, you know, wholeheartedly sticks by the freedom of the slaves. He's just like, can we just, like, whatever, you know, like he he's not genuinely supporting the women that he performs surgeries on. It's more like, I, I don't know, can I just get a better reputation out of this stuff? He's literally only looking out for himself and any like qualms, quibbles and arguments about freeing the slaves, first of all, and then giving them voting rights. He was just like, I don't I don't care. You guys are like really bugging me with all of this. How is this helping me yes. at the end of the day? Exactly. And I mean, be- because of this. Like people really did not like J. Marion Sims, the dude slash the douche. And and by the way, quick sminty side note, use of douche as a pejorative is totally validated because as we know from the episode, bag the douche, <laughs> douche is a horrible um concoction that women were tricked into you know, inserting into their vaginal canals. So it is an accurate description in a lot of ways yeah. of this guy. He's he's a terrible thing that was in women's vaginas. <laughs> so true. He's the ultimate douche. <laughs> um, so nonetheless, his book, Clinical Notes on Uterine Surgery, was widely read. And it took a straightforward approach to women's health and gynecological disorders. And the book's emphasis on sterility treatment, particularly artificial insemination was way ahead of its time. Yeah, that's great. And then he totally mucks it up again. And this is actually an interesting sminty side note for those of you who listened to our episode on the Marmorian flock, the group of lady sculptors in Rome in the 19th century. Uh, in 1870, the douche published a newspaper account of his treatment of famous actress Charlotte Cushman. And now Cushman was one of the primary patrons and benefactors of these sculptor ladies. Uh, but, but seriously, like a doctor publishing, like, hey guys, I treated this famous lady. Uh, the New York Academy of Medicine immediately was like, are you kidding me? They reprimanded him formally for resorting to paid advertising and hello, breaking confidentiality. Yeah. I mean, this guy totally, again, like, I'm just imagining how awful he would be on Twitter. Like, hey guys, <laughs> Jen Aniston just left my office. Hashtag winning. <laughs> and so, and- 
in this decade of the 1870s, you have colleagues and the hospital board lobbing charges of unethical experimentation at him. And there's some like awful and dismissive quote of his that I neglected to include in the notes. But he's basically like the ladies, meaning the hospital board. He's like the ladies are at it again. Yeah, he was just, he was a joy. Uh, in 1876, hooray, he performs the first documented gallbladder surgery. I'm getting frustrated with his string of successes. <laughs> like, that's great. First gallbladder surgery. Yay, but uh, he also at the same time promoted now discredited techniques like ovarian removal for various physical and psychosomatic conditions termed hysterical diseases. Ah, there we go. The all floating uterus. Hmm. So, I mean, already I'm annoyed that he has any statues. <laughs> Take the statues. At all. Uh, I mean, yeah, he was clearly no saint. Um, but what we want to get into is like, was he evil? Capital E, evil. Has he been misrepresented? Is he simply a product of his time? Like, what do we know about this? Yeah. I mean, like, do, does his, do his personal views and, the way that he was able to make those scientific discoveries, does that discredit essentially those scientific discoveries? You know what I mean? Like, does it literally knock him off that pedestal? Um, And this is something that critics and supporters have argued over because there's the argument that enslaved people could not truly grant consent in the way we think of it today, even if they fully understood the procedures and were indeed clamorous to be treated, but they were a vulnerable population. No bones about it. They were subject to the whims and wishes of the people who owned them and rented them, in Sims's case, like property, and who wanted to fix them, not so that they could be healthy and have a better quality of life, but so that they could be put back to work. Right, because, you know, you have to keep in mind that... During the system of slavery, black women couldn't pop out enough babies. And once slavery is over, then you shift into black people are having too many babies, as we will discuss in our next episode. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they were absolutely property. They were not human beings, whether it was a doctor or a slave owner. And so if these women desperate for relief were owned by Sims or on some weird loan, could they have raised objections if he did, in an Arcus case, for instance, need to operate 30 times? I mean, we'll never know because we don't have records of these women's voices. They might have wanted help, but it doesn't mean that they wanted the degree of pain and suffering that they were exposed to in repeated experimental surgeries. But you've got gynecologist and Sims explainer slash apologist, depending on how you see him, uh, L. Lewis Walls, who argues he's living today. He's a modern gynecologist, uh, as Sims did in his autobiography, that some treatment was better than no treatment. Right. The women, quote, had only two therapeutic choices. Walls writes they could continue as they were with whatever palliative treatment might be provided or they could agree to undergo experimental surgical operations that might offer them some relief, perhaps even a total cure for their condition. And Walls, who uh, nowadays treats women in Africa with vesicovaginal fistulas, says that these women are desperate for a cure and will willingly submit to almost any therapy proposed to them. And and to that and to several other things that Walls says in the paper that we read that he wrote, I have to say 
Does the modern perspective on vesicovaginal fistula patients, does it justify, as Walls seems to argue, Sims's treatment of them? It seems to he seems to argue that, like, you guys, why are you making stuff up about how awful he was? And that, like, I, I, like you said, Kristen, I mean, yes, he made these amazing discoveries that would help so many women, especially post advent of anesthesia. But were the means a justification for the ends? And can Walls, with his experience, however, firsthand, can he justify the things that Sims did? I mean, Walls also argues that Sims wrote about discussing the procedures with patients and receiving their consent to undergo the procedures. And he says that you basically have to assume that these women cooperated because he's like, think about how delicate these procedures were. If the women were forced into it, you know, and they were thrashing around, like trying to get away, they would be even more injured. And it's like, well, can, ha, ah, like, I don't know how you can. Yes, they're absolutely delicate surgeries, obviously. And you obviously don't want to be moving around and like thrashing about when someone's got a scalpel and some sutures in your vaginal canal. But can you seriously make the argument that like, oh, yeah, they were like totally down for everything he was doing? Well, because, I mean, if they were to protest, then they could be punished. You know, they could face a different kind of physical pain. So it's a sketchy argument at best. And, yeah, this whole like Machiavellian like medicine is um, is honestly tough to unravel because of the benefits. Yes, that we do enjoy today as, you know, people who, you know, undergo modern OBGYN treatments, you know, but you still have, of course, like to that point, people like historian Harriet Washington, who underscores the pain that these women went through, the torment. Um, And if anything, it is a horrifying lesson in us not taking medical advancements for granted, the mm-hmm. medical advancements to treat the female body. Yeah, exactly. And and we've mentioned anesthesia a hundred times already and the fact that these women were not under anesthesia when they underwent these uh, procedures. And so what is the deal? Is he some cruel, sadistic racist who purposely withheld anesthesia? I mean, probably. <laughs> Honestly, not a great guy. But the answer, of course, as with all of this, is it's not that simple. So Sims began his surgeries on these enslaved women a year before anesthesia was successfully demonstrated for the first time. Because you've got like for a 100 years, doctors experimenting with different types of uh, experimental anesthetics, but no success. Then in October of 1846, you get dentist William T. Morton administering an effective anesthetic, sulfuric ether, to a patient having a tumor in his neck removed. And you, although, like, around this time you'd had a bunch of other people who'd been testing new ideas and methods, Morton really revolutionized it with his delivery system, which helped control how much ether a patient inhaled during the procedure, which meant, hello, your patient wouldn't OD. And it basically gave birth to the field of anesthesiology. But even so, the use of anesthesia, though it spread rapidly, was still not accepted Universally, there were still all sorts of weird, like, you shouldn't be put under because, like, you might die, but also, like, you need to feel the pain and, like, stay alert. Well, and I don't know where this 
Morton Dentist was located, but I would also be curious to know how long it would take news of that successful anesthesia to reach 19th century Montgomery, Alabama. Sure, exactly. Yeah. I mean, even proponents of using anesthesia weren't sure that all patients needed it. And this was definitely the case, unfortunately, with doctors, men, treating people with vesicovaginal fistulas, women, Uh, Writing in 1859, for instance, Sir James Young Simpson, who had discovered chloroform, wrote, The mere amount of pain endured by the patient is perhaps less than in most surgical operations, as the walls of the vesicovaginal septum are far less sensitive than you would a priori imagine. Are you kidding me? Men! Seriously. Um, Sorry, I'm like ramped up here. And Simpson's words actually echoed... Uh, Sims' words that he had given during a New York lecture in 1857 during a time, BTW, that he was exclusively treating white women, some of higher classes, at his hospital. He said that, oh, yeah, I never use anesthesia during fistula operations, quote, because they are not painful enough to justify the trouble and risk attending their administration. Plus, he'd written about a white woman that he'd treated back in 1849 on whom he hadn't used anesthesia Either. And I would bet, though, that that woman would have been working class, lower class, because class definitely plays a role if you are a white woman and whether or not you would receive any of this old school anesthesia, because there is this idea and Sims totally bought into it that upper class white women were simply too fragile and couldn't tolerate surgery without ether. And this also is around the time when we start seeing uh, doctors first advocating for cesareans rather than vaginal deliveries because of the same idea that these <laughs> they were called bookish at the time. These bookish wealthy women just did not have it in them like a working class, a tough working class woman did to deliver. So it was the same kind of thinking extended to anesthesia. And then, of course, though, if you are a woman of color, you are not going to get anesthesia, regardless of how much money you have, probably because of this racist notion that Sims actually wrote about that black women have a, quote, naturally high pain tolerance. Um, in 1892, for instance, we have American neurologist Silas Weir Mitchell writing, oh, God, and this this quote, oh, I don't even want to quote it. The savage does not feel pain as we do. So this includes people of color, people also from Jewish and Irish Irish ancestry, also Native Americans and people from Southern Europe. You were they were all believed to have a higher pain tolerance slash an inferior awareness of pain. This wasn't like some kind of superpower. Obviously, this was a sign that they were poorly bred. Yeah, but the horrifying paradox is that you've got all these white doctors then who accuse people of color and people of lower classes of overreacting to pain, acting foolish in the operating room. But it's like, um, no, I think I think that's a false. What is that? A false truth? What is, false logic that like, oh, you think that like, oh, you can't feel pain as much. So look at you overreacting, you foolish person. Shouldn't it be like, oh, no, they're human. And so they feel pain just like any other human and they're reacting appropriately. And it wouldn't be until the 1940s that doctors started to even just question this race based idea of 
pain, but that racist residue remained and remains. Um, but going back a few decades, a 1981 study from Hawaii found that white surgery patients were likelier to be given analgesics compared to Filipino, Japanese or Chinese patients, in part because of those old school stereotypes about how different ethnic groups respond to pain. And if we look at a more recent study from 2002, this landmark research found that patients of color, again, were less likely to receive the same quality of care as white patients, even when both groups had similar insurance or the same ability to pay for care. And, oh, it's still with us. It's still with us. Yeah, because a study in January of 2016 found that black patients are more likely to die in the ICU than white patients. And the researchers tied this to the fact that the doctors literally paid less attention. They displayed less empathy to patients of color than they did to white patients. They were more likely to physically approach and touch and comfort and soothe the white patients, whereas when they were dealing with the black patients, they tended to stand at a distance, hold a notebook in front of them, not offer as many comforting words. And we should note that uh, the study authors point out that since most of the doctors, most but not all of the doctors in that study were white, it was hard to tell whether the quality of care would have been better if they had been, say, doctors of color. But they also note that previous research has found that there does tend to be better doctor-patient rapport when both share the same ethnicity. Yeah, and I mean, you've got plenty of previous research that's shown that up to two-thirds of doctors do display unconscious racial bias. So nothing like calling people names or like actively trying to treat them poorly, but it's bad enough that black patients can pick up on it. And Caroline, in reading about uh, discrimination, that kind of like unconscious racial bias that a lot of women of color face when they go to the doctor, um, there was an anecdote from one African-American woman saying, whenever I have to go to the doctor, like if it's something unscheduled, I make sure I dress well mm-hmm. so that I will be taken more seriously. Yeah, because studies have shown that there's a higher likelihood that healthcare professionals will assume that people of color are exhibiting drug seeking behavior and that they are just lying about their pain to get pills, basically. I mean, and speaking of pain, there was a fascinating and horrifying at the same time Boston Globe article from June of 2014 that looked at pain and the way that it registers and is treated. And they found that in experiments, both women and people of color in general have frequently shown lower pain tolerance when asked to do things like hold their hands in ice water during experiments, which, of course, goes against the the person of color aspect, goes against all of those racist assumptions from the 19th century that we've been talking about. And when they're looking at gender specifically, uh, researchers have found that our different pain tolerances emerge during puberty and women end up more susceptible to things like migraines, back pain and fibromyalgia. And there have been all of these studies that show that heart surgery patients, if you're a man, you're more likely to get pain meds. And if you're a woman, you're more likely to get sedatives, which ties into the whole continuing assumption about hysteria. And considering how chronic pain conditions 
tend to affect more women than men, there's also this issue of doctors having to be convinced mm-hmm. to give them the right kind and the, the enough of uh, their pain relievers. Um, and if we look at socioeconomics, too, research has found that low-income Americans are likely to suffer pain compared to their high-income peers, probably due to correlates with manual labor, uh, unhealthy diets, and not being able to afford going to the doctor. Yeah, and so you're starting to see percolating to the surface, really just echoes of everything that we talked about in Sims Day. You're seeing people being taken less seriously, pain being taken less seriously because it's in a woman or someone of a lower socioeconomic class or someone of color. And speaking of race and ethnicity, among pain patients, black people and Hispanic people are likelier to report that their pain is severe. And black women are much likelier, for instance, to die from breast cancer. Black women are hyper overrepresented in breast cancer patients, but they are more likely also to die of it. Hyper overrepresented in the sense of population proportion. So... We also find that black pain patients are less likely overall compared to white patients to receive pain medication. And when they do receive it, they receive less of it. And studies of post-op care have repeatedly found that white patients receive higher doses of opioids than patients of color. Right. And so what's going on? I mean, the researchers talk about conscious and unconscious bias, but also docs assumptions about patients insurance and payment. So you know, like racism, racism, racist assumptions, basically. Um, there's also, though, weird internalized ideas about pain. A University of Virginia professor, Sophie Treywalter, in 2012 asked people to think about pain in certain situations and then showed them pictures of a black or a white person and asked the participant how much pain the person in the picture was in. Both white and black participants rated black patients' pain as less severe And a related study found that this pain bias that's tied to black or white patients emerges as early as seven. And Treywalter attributes this kind of benevolent racism to the belief that black people have harder lives and that hardship leads to toughness. And this also leads us to the trope of, you know, the strong black woman, yeah. which can be very harmful as well because of all of these very practical issues of literally like, you know, doctors assuming like, well, you don't need as much uh, pain treatment, um, but also just those those racist ideologies, too, that um, give us you know, kind of, quote unquote, permission to maybe not consider their needs as much because it's like, oh, well, you know, they're so strong or so tough. They've been through so much. So even, I guess, physical pain can also be withstood to a stronger degree. Again, echoes of the way that people were thinking about enslaved people in this country. Like, oh, they're tough. They're fine. But then again, like those people were literally viewed as property. Well, and speaking of which, I mean, this chapter of gynecology, early gynecological history, is part of a broader legacy of people of color 
really being used as guinea pigs for a lot of uh, medical experimentation that has gone on um, in the United States. Uh, Todd Savitt, for instance, who's a medical historian at East Carolina University, told BuzzFeed News, quote, medicine is an integral part of the story of slavery. And this is something that Henrietta Washington writes about in her book, Medical Apartheid, um, that we referenced in our podcast a while back now on Henrietta Lacks, who died from cervical cancer, um, but without her family's consent, uh, cells were taken from her, I guess, from her cervix, and they infinitely reproduce these HeLa cells as they're known today. And thanks to these HeLa cells, there have been all sorts of medical breakthroughs that have resulted. But the family, you know, of Henrietta Lacks rightfully feels so wronged by this because, again, it's like bodies just being used as property. Right. Yeah. As Shankar Vedantam said, just props for someone else's advancement. And again, it's the same thing with Sims of like, you know, researchers and physicians have been able to make incredible discoveries based on stolen cells from this woman who was not informed and who later died and her family who was never informed. And it's also I mean, these issues also are not exclusive to the bodies of women of color. I mean, you have the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study that was initiated in 1932, which deliberately infected 400 black men with syphilis. Um, if we go back to 1855, around the same time that J. Marion Sims is uh, building his women's hospital, you have John Fed Brown, who was an escaped slave. Recall that the doctor to whom he was indentured would produce painful blisters on his body in order to observe, quote, how deep my black skin went. Um, and then if we want some more horrifying examples, uh, we also have in the 50s, black Floridians being deliberately exposed to swarms of mosquitoes carrying yellow fever and other diseases in experiments conducted by the Army and the CIA. And finally, we have in the 60s and 70s, and I say finally, just as this is the end of my list, this is not the end of uh, these instances, but in the 60s and 70s, you have African-American boys being subjected to sometimes paralyzing neurosurgery by a researcher at the University of Mississippi who believed that brain pathology could be the root of children's uh, hyperactive behavior. So the subjects he chose, black boys. Right. And so this this country, I mean, we have an undeniable history of racist medical developments. Yeah. I mean, and and the thing is, we can't go back in time and change it. And the solution obviously is not, okay. all of those procedures out the door. You know, if we were to retire every single medical procedure that traces back to either a recent or distant past, uh, racist experimentation or ideology. I mean, hospitals would just collapse in on themselves, probably. So what do we do in that case? I mean, what do we do in the cases of Lucy, Betsy, Anarka, and the other women who are really the mothers of gynecology? Well, Victoria Gamble, who we cited earlier, had the suggestion of memorializing them through their own statues. If Sims has three, 
why don't these three women have any? And so she says that, you know, the statues would not be based on the experiments that they were subjected to because we shouldn't think of them just as victims. She says it might be with the three of them together or it might be withholding their children because they were mothers and they were women. So that would be part of it. Uh, so it would not be, she says, they're prostrate on the altar of science. And then she says, I think what the inscription would say is Betsy, Anarka, and Lucy, the mothers of modern gynecology. And I think that that statue should happen. How do we build a statue, Caroline? Do you, like, kickstart that? I Yeah, that's, like, the only thing that I can think of. Is that I'm sure some listener who works for the government knows how you get a statue yeah. erected. Because, but, I mean, can we start, like, a campaign? I mean, I'm sure we could, and... You know, I think there's an interesting point about Sims's statues. A lot of people have argued for them to come down, but there was one anecdote we read, and I'm so sorry, I can't remember who it was, if it was Gamble or if it was another researcher. But she said that she had initially supported taking all of the Sims statues down until she took a tour of the basically the slave trade in Liverpool in the UK. And there was this statue of Neptune with two black boys basically in chains at the base of the statue. And people had been arguing for that to come down. And the black man who was leading the tour said, well, I don't think it should, because if this statue comes down, people will forget. People will not talk about it anymore because they will not see this visible reminder of the horrors that happened right here in this city. And so I think um, that argument could also be applied to Sims. Uh, it would be nice to maybe see on the plaques by his statues, maybe an asterisk uh, explaining that um, while, yes, he did develop some incredible life-changing procedures, he did it at the expense of women who basically had no choice. So listeners, we now want to know what you think about all of this. A, do you know how we can get a statue built? B, have you, are you a patient of color who has ever experienced this kind of discrimination in the doctor's office? Um, we want to hear your stories because obviously this is, yes, uh, history that we've been talking about, but it is history that lives on today. So mom stuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. I've got a letter here from another Kristen in response to our colorism episode. Uh, she says, you mentioned a study that stated how the dark-skinned black women who were surveyed all said that they had at some point wanted to be lighter-skinned, but the light-skinned black women surveyed had never wanted to be darker. This reminded me of something I used to do in my childhood. A very light-skinned Mexican-American girl, I would purposely try to stay out in the sun as long as I could, wanting to become dark like my sisters, most of my family members, and the group of Mexican kids at my school. I would even take suntan lotion and rub it all over myself and then go lie out in the sun. I remember that even at a young age, I was conscious that darker-skinned Mexicans were perceived as more authentically Mexican and that my light skin, compounded with the fact that I wasn't taught Spanish, made it more difficult for me to gain acceptance in Mexican social groups and even within my own family, in which only my mother, grandmother, and I are light. 
Don't get me wrong, I definitely know my privilege as a light-skinned Mexican and have seen firsthand how, for example, my father's dark skin has made him a target for random searches, being followed around department stores, being asked for receipts upon leaving a store, and even having racial slurs hurled at him from moving cars. I know without a doubt that I move through life differently than he does and that our skin colors impact our daily lives. In fact, my mom once told me that instead of focusing on radio journalism, I should go into TV news as it would be easy for me to get a job since as a Latina, I would be a diversity hire, but that I looked, quote, white enough to not be perceived as threatening to the status quo, a happy medium for everyone. Even now at 27, I struggle with feeling authentically connected to my Mexican heritage due to my light skin, but I try to remember that authentic Mexicans come in all shades, from white to black and everything in between. Thanks for these thought and memory-provoking podcasts. And thank you, Kristen. So I've got a letter here from Chin Wei also about our colorism episode. And Chin Wei writes, I was going to skip this particular episode, but I'm glad I listened to the end. As a dark-skinned woman, I'm kind of tired of everyone telling me how bad my life should be, how hard I must have it, and how I most certainly hate myself. I've never experienced those things. Not sure what luck prevented me from not having that particular experience, but I'm very grateful for it. I struggle between trying not to have my experience erased and trying to support any relief exposure of colorism can bring to those impacted by it. I know it must have been difficult for two white women to speak about this, so I applaud your efforts. I do think there's so much nuance missed when you don't have personal experience to draw on. And I think this episode could have been made slightly better from firsthand accounts. And for the record, Chinway, totally agree with you there. As a black, non-African-American woman, I want to give particular credit to African-American women for continuing to push this conversation worldwide. I think there's been a lot of progress on this issue, a lot of recognition of our biases and active individual steps to combat it as well. And there's still more to do, but I truly believe my darker tone nieces and nephews will grow up in a different society than the one my peers experienced. Thanks for the attempt, Shinwei. Well, thank you for sharing your personal experiences with us um, because, I mean, I think as we said in that podcast, we wanted to hear firsthand accounts because you're absolutely right. Two white-skinned women cannot firsthand relate to this. Um, so keep the conversation going, friends. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send your letters and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources. If you want to learn more about the mothers of gynecology, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands. Not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. 
Tennessee sounds perfect. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.